This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed in Washington State. That happened at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. Now, that hospital part of the $25 billion Providence St. Joseph Health System, which includes 51 hospitals, 800 clinics, or more than 800, and about 115,000 caregivers, a very big system. Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips is back with us. She's Chief Clinical Officer and Executive Vice President at Providence St. Joseph Health, uh, once again on the phone from Everett, Washington. Um, Dr. Compton-Phillips, I know know it's a hectic time uh, certainly for you guys out there but we do look to what's going on in Washington to get an idea of maybe perhaps how this uh, virus is ultimately being dealt with and hopefully managed and controlled where are we uh, thanks so much for asking. We are in early days. Um, it's really interesting. I'm actually, you know, in downtown Seattle, um, and and with the impact of this virus on our community, Seattle looks a little bit like a ghost town because um, all of the large industries have asked people to work from home, which means that um, we're doing the important things around social distancing, trying to prevent spread from of the virus from one person to the next. But it definitely has an impact on the way it feels uh, walking around the city. And so, uh, Dr. Compton-Phillips, help us understand where we are medically as well and, and clinically, because we're all trying to get our heads around the spread, and and you are in a unique position, fortunately or unfortunately, to really understand how this is working, how it's spreading, how it's manifesting. Help us understand what you've learned. Will do. Um, you know, we're still, like I said, early days, and part of that is because we simply do not yet have access to the testing we need to be able to identify people um, before they have symptoms or very early in their symptoms. Because, um, you know, I, I know that the plan is to ramp up testing capacity, but we're not there yet. Um, we the, the test kits are not out into the community, um, which means that we're saving test kits for people who are quite ill. And so our stats here in the U.S. make it look like the mortality is very high, but we're only testing people who have severe pneumonia. So um, can I ask you why those test kits are not in the community? Is it just a case that they're not available? They aren't available, exactly. So there was, you've read a lot about what's going on with the initial CDC test. Mm -hmm. Um, But also part of it is we've developed our own test in-house. We simply can't get the reagents. Those reagents have all been used um, for tests in China and in South Korea where they're doing 10,000 tests a day um, and then manufacturing the one by the federal government. And so I was literally on the phone with the chief exec and the chief medical officer at Roche yesterday trying to get enough reagents for us to be able to run 500 tests. And and there just simply is not enough manufactured in the supply chain. So what's the consequences of our inability to do the tests that I think many would argue need to be done so that we can really amass and figure out or figure out what what the situation is, what the accurate situation is. Well, so what happens is people are, and, and very justifiably, fearful of the virus. And so so um, companies and organizations are making calls like shut down the entire campus because we might have had one person who was exposed. And so we're actually, uh, 
my, my personal belief is we're impacting the economy even more because we simply can't assess who does have the germ and who needs to be isolated and kept um, uh, under quarantine. So right now, instead, we're, we're shutting down big swaths of the, the city um, so that we don't have the transmission from person to person like we all worry about. And what have you uh, learned, Dr. Compton-Phillips? And, and, and I think it's interesting that, as you say, you're only testing the most severe cases. What have you learned that, that maybe you didn't know a couple weeks ago about this illness and, and its symptoms or the, the way that it's working medically? Well, we definitely have learned that um, it is a virus that if you have any underlying medical issues, um, and it could be that you're, you're older, or it could be that you have diabetes or heart disease, that this particular virus has a predilection for, for going down into the lungs and causing pneumonia. Um, and that's the downside to it, that, that rather than regular influenza where you get a fever and a headache and a little bit of a cough, this one, by going down into the lungs, can cause real repercussions. And so we're, um, we are having to do all kinds of interesting things like, like converting um, uh, additional hospital beds over to ICU beds to prepare for an influx of people who may need um, assistance with ventilation. So, hmm, when all is said and done, can, do you have any kind of, do you feel like visibility about how much longer, and as you said, early days, so maybe this question is really, forgive me, pretty stupid, but I do wonder if you have any visibility about how long, based on what happened in China, can we start to draw any conclusions about how this plays out in the U.S.? Just got about 50 seconds here. Um, Absolutely not a stupid question, and I wish I had that crystal ball, and I don't. I hope that it goes away like seasonal flu does during the summertime, but can't predict that. Um, And we are not doing what they did in China, which is absolutely shutting down the economy and confining everybody to home. Um, And so I think our experience here in the U.S. will play out quite differently. All right. We really appreciate your time uh, just providing insights that uh, very few are getting candidly. And you're on the ground. You understand this uh, so holistically. We really appreciate it. Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips is Chief Clinical Officer and Executive Vice President of Providence St. Joseph Health. She joined us on the phone, as she said, from Seattle, where it's all happening. All right, people looking for the truth. Well, in the past, they may have been stymied by lots and lots of responses when they Google something, all those results coming back. In an age where information is that much more important, especially when it comes to people's health, uh, Google taking some different steps. Garrett DeVink uh, co-wrote a really good story that both Carol and I really glommed onto this morning. Dr. Google scrubs coronavirus misinformation <laughs> it's a great on search and YouTube. Garrett's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice reporting on this uh, and a little bit of a surprise, it feels like, at least to maybe folks who aren't following it as closely as you are. Help us understand what Google's doing here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we've had a lot of controversy over the last few years about, you know, essentially things, whether it's related to school shootings or terrorism or anti-vax hoaxes, that kind of thing showing up on Google, showing up on Facebook, on Twitter. Twitter, on YouTube. And at this, you know, th- those conversations have kind of been going on, you know, in a very intense way over the last couple of years. And when it comes to coronavirus, we're seeing Google really lock things down in a way that they've kind of been hesitant to in the past. Of course, you know, they do respond to some of those other issues, mostly by just putting news results from mainstream news organizations at the top of uh, YouTube results in particular. But when it comes to coronavirus on Google search, 
uh, if you search on your phone or even on your desktop, the first six or seven results will all be very official, will link to the CDC, will link to news reports or to the WHO itself. And so, I mean, I think they are just very careful about uh, being seen as not doing enough, being seen as spreading misinformation, and they're really trying to lock it down in whatever way they can. Why? And I, I don't know whether it's because Google, you know, has been looking to maybe be a bigger player in the healthcare industry, and so this is right up their alley, and they want to make sure they get it right. Like, what's different versus some other situations where there's been a lot of misinformation on their uh, site? Yeah, I mean, I think we're in sort of a very particular political situation where Google's very concerned about this stuff, obviously, you know, more so than, than some of the other maybe U.S specific political controversies that they've gone to criticism for in the past. But I do think you're right. I think what's interesting is it says, okay, well, say, you know, this does sort of end at some point and this this uh, virus comes under control. What then, where does Google go from that? Because the Dr. Google criticism has been there for a while that people have been Googling their symptoms instead of talking to a doctor right. or really figuring things out on their own, especially in the U.S. where people are sometimes uh, hesitant if they don't have health insurance to go to a doctor. And so I think, you know, we uh, have some, you know, sourcing saying that Google is looking more and more at stepping up some of the ways that they provide health information and search that is different than how they provide other kinds of info. Well, and you have to imagine that given the power and the influence of Google, maybe as Google goes, so goes at least the more responsible corners of the internet? Or is that is that me being overly optimistic? Yeah, I mean, and, and it goes back to that conversation of, you know, if we really want to zoom back and say, you know, Google has a lot of power over the internet. They yeah. they always say, you know, our algorithms are neutral. We're, we're not here to pick and choose uh, winners, but that's exactly what they do. And, you know, it's good if they want to focus on sort of quality of content and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, uh, decisions that are made by engineers uh, in secret at Google do have huge ramifications for the internet and the kind of information that people find and that lives and dies. Well, because as you sort of allude to when we've learned this about artificial intelligence, so much of what you get on the back end depends on what goes in at the front end, sort of essentially how the computers are taught not to be too sort mm -hmm. of no, simplistic exactly. about it, right? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, Google is, is obviously very sensitive about this. I mean, uh, they don't want to be seen as sort of uh, deleting things from the internet right. or, um, you know, censoring things on the internet. Um, they're very sensitive about it. They, they do talk about it a lot. And, and I trust that they really do take these things seriously. But it shows that in a moment of crisis, when they sort of step in in this very uh, kind of heavy handed way, it does say, oh, well, where else could they do this? But again, they're doing this. It's not like people, individuals reading through and picking out what's right or what's wrong or what seems to be questionable information about the virus. I mean, there's algorithms that are picking up on words and so on and so forth. Is that how Yeah, absolutely. It? I mean, the algorithms are still definitely the ones really making the majority of the decisions. Obviously, there's so much info on the internet. Yeah. You can go piece by piece. But they do look at YouTube videos that get flagged. There are humans that look at those things and right. physically take them down. And, you know, when it comes to deciding that a CDC link is going to go at the top of Google search, that isn't an, an individual, a leader at Google making that decision. I got to tell you, this reminds me of our conversation with Kathy Wood yesterday of our, you know, investments that, you know, when there's volatility and market disruptions, it leads to innovation and maybe better ways of doing it. And you do wonder whether we can on the other side of that Google kind of get something out of this that they can apply more broadly to stuff that's on their website. And I yeah. guess time will tell. It's great reporting. We really appreciate it. Garrett Tavink, uh, tech reporter here at Bloomberg, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, let's get back out to the West Coast, which really is ground zero, at least in the United States, for the coronavirus outbreak. 
No one has been watching it more closely and with better reporting than Peter Robeson. He's a projects and investigations reporter for Bloomberg. Joining us on the phone from Seattle, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Peter, the story which came out on the Bloomberg yesterday, it is an absolute must read. You wrote it with uh, Dina Bass and Robert Langreth. It really takes us inside the very beginning of this right in your backyard. Help us understand patient zero. Right. Thanks, Jason. So um, this has happened so fast. We, we wanted to reconstruct exactly how it happened. Um, and so we went back to the first announced case in the U.S., which was a man in Snohomish County, Washington, just north of Seattle. And uh, this man had come from uh, visiting family in Wuhan, China, January 15th, arrived at the airport. January 19th, he went to a clinic um, in Snohomish County. And at that point, the county and, and the man himself, who seems very conscientious about this, did everything right. He, he put on a, a mask. Uh, the, the county put him in, a, in an isolation unit that had been uh, intended for Ebo- the Ebola virus. And then, you know, closely monitored his contacts over the following weeks. Um, but, but still, somehow, uh, the transmission was missed because later research by uh, uh, researchers in Seattle who we talked to found that there was a second case less than 15 miles away that has a 97% chance of being related to this, this first, uh, first known person with the infection. So I think, Peter, I think one thing that really jumps out here is this language that, you know, he basically did everything right. And yet look what happened in Seattle, which is, you know, probably right up there in the U.S. in terms of having um, the worst outbreak around. So so what lessons do other can other cities draw from Seattle's experience amid all this? The, the lesson we that really came through in all the reporting is that cities and states need to do everything earlier than they were expecting, that, that widespread testing needs to happen earlier. These social distancing techniques uh, need to happen earlier. And it, and it all seems draconian and strange when it's first done. But then a day later, um, it, it seems like it's too little to, to prevent cases from, from increasing. Yeah, I do wonder, it's interesting, um, Jason and I spoke earlier with Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, and she's at uh, Providence St. Joseph Health with, again, Ground Zero, where the first uh, case in the United States was confirmed there. You know, she reminds, she says, we're early days, and she talked about, you know, the lacking, the lack of, rather, test kits uh, in the community. You know, as you continue to report on this and you look at, you know, patient zero, and how it's still spread despite kind of doing everything right. I mean, how do you see this continuing to unfold? I mean, you're there on the ground. She talked about Seattle being, you know, pretty much a ghost town. You've talked about that with us as well. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's going to, uh, you know, as, as the former commissioner of the FDA said, uh, this this will change the complexion of the country, and it, and it's still hard to imagine. And you do have this strange mix where people are out at the park, but. Every, everyone is is looking more warily at each other, um, and and part of it is that we just don't know that in some in some place, but but we do know that in some places the the, the rate of escalation has increased very quickly, and and the, the Trevor Bedford, who's the researcher at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, who we talked to, who's who's closely analyzed the genomes, says that uh, once there's community spread, uh, the, the infections tend to increase, uh, they tend to double every six days. So 
He's forecasting a thousand cases in Seattle area by March 10th, 2000 by March 15th. So it seems to just increase the need for all of these closures of public places that we're seeing, which are terribly detrimental to the economy. And and so what's the vibe in, in Seattle just as, you know, not as journalist or anything else, just as a citizen of a place? What What's the vibe like? <laughs> it's... Uh, it's the number one topic of conversation. Everyone talks about it. Uh, will my school be closed is probably the, the, the number one question, because if you're a parent with a kid in school, that immediately changes your life and how you manage your day. And um, people have differing opinions about whether what we've seen is too much, but you wouldn't get this scale of public health warnings un- unless there was a strong scientific belief that it's needed. And so in the course of your reporting, and, and as I mentioned, you know, you worked on this story with uh, some great colleagues, Dina and uh, Robert Langreth, Dina Bass and, and Robert Langreth. When you guys were sort of comparing notes, what jumped out at you the most? What surprised you the most, Peter? Again, as someone, as, as Joel has alluded to, you know the city so well, you know the culture. I mean, this is a really important business city uh, and culturally uh, in the United States. What, what, what jumped out at you? What surprised you? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a very, I think it's a very conscientious city. I mean, part yeah. part of the reason Seattle may seem like it's ahead of the rest of the country is that there there is a researcher here who's sequencing the genomes and is, is you know, sending very, you know, carefully, uh, carefully thought out uh, warnings to people. And there there are, um, you know, the, the first person, you know, did apparently, you know, was apparently conscientious. Um, so I, so I think um, what's jumping out to me is 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 that you know and and also the fact that that Stanford also further down the west coast moved quickly to right. online classes i think I think it just seems to be a half beat ahead of understanding what's happening so Peter, when you think about uh you know life returning to normal and coming out of this maybe it's not a v shape it's a u shape or some even think it could be an l shape but like how how are people talking about life returning to normal and and what kind of horizon people, does that look people like people talk about it as if it will happen but we haven't seen anything to indicate how that happens and and you know more what people talk about is if we, once we get on top of the number of cases and and the virus has has you know, run its course, how do we know that there isn't a, a, a re-escalation in cases? You know, so it's going to be difficult to know exactly when to ease back on the social distancing. And Peter, your story, though, you know, it's the whole idea is really kind of going to, you know, patient one is to offer lessons in how to and not to fight the virus, correct? And it just got about 30 seconds. Your key takeaway from all of this so far? The key takeaway, again, is, is just do everything earlier. And if something seems draconian, it's probably not because the virus is moving faster than efforts to contain it in many places. And that includes more test-taking, right? Exactly. Yeah, getting getting widespread testing out to at least know the scale of the problem. And if someone has come in contact with an infected person, they can, they can self-isolate. All right. Uh, fantastic reporting. We've really... Uh 
We are really grateful to you for everything you've done so far. Looking forward to talking to you again as this story continues to unfold. Peter Robeson, Projects and Investigations reporter for Bloomberg. His story will be featured in the upcoming issue of the magazine. You can read it right now on the Bloomberg Terminal and at Bloomberg.com. Our thanks to Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine. This is Bloomberg. idea what this new music is. <laughs> hardcore. Talk about hardcore. It's certainly been the energy markets. Oil, man, just got hammered yesterday. Uh, worst loss since 1991. We have seen uh, a bit of a bounce back today, but it, you know, safe to say still under pressure due to, as I love this phrase, Jill Weber talking about the knife fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and that continues. Stuart Glickman is head of energy. He was very proud of himself. When I can tell. I loved it. Um, Stuart Glickman is head of energy um, research over at CFRA Research. He joins us on the phone from New Jersey. Um, Stu, good to have you back with us. Where are we today when it comes? I mean, energy bouncing back, but what has been, what's changed, what's been fixed between the knife fight between Saudi Arabia and Russia? Uh, good afternoon, Carol. So, so nothing's really been fixed between those two. And unfortunately, while this knife fight is going on, a lot of the U.S. shale players are, are, are going to be collateral damage uh, on, on the outside of this fracas. Um, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's coming at the worst possible time, given all of the concerns that were already in the market about the coronavirus, even before Saudis and, and Russia broke up. And so... Were you surprised at the at the timing of this and, and maybe the reaction? What did you make of it as those headlines started breaking, Stuart? Uh, I, I was extremely surprised. I don't think the market was expecting that either. I mean, if you look at if you look at the the uh, the move in crude oil, WTI was down twenty five percent yesterday, and, and granted, it's it's made a partial recovery today. Uh, I, I think, given all the concerns and the weakness that was in the market, we went from potentially having Saudis and, and the OPEC consortium cut a collective one and a half million barrels a day to know that's going away to, oh my goodness, uh, the, the effective disintegration of OPEC. Is that what's happening? I, I think, I think th- there's wow. a real concern that, you know, if, if when Saudi Arabia, the, the largest member of OPEC, is saying that they're going to produce up to 12 million barrels a day, uh, it's, it's really almost every country for itself. And, yeah. and so unless, unless cooler heads can prevail and, and, and both of those folks are willing to put away their knives, uh, I think, you know, the risk is to the downside uh, with, with oil uh, in 2020. And so what's an investor to do here, Stuart? Where do you look for, you know, maybe some, some value? I mean, I look across the S&P, a uh, couple of the biggest performers, best performers today, after obviously a miserable day uh, yesterday, you're looking at Oxy, you're looking at Marathon, Occidental, I should say. Uh, what do you make of some of those names and, and some others we should be thinking about? Yeah, so, so both Oxy, um, Oxy particularly has high debt levels. Uh, the, the timing of their acquisition of Anadarko uh, probably could not have been worse, yeah. uh, given what's happened since then. Uh, my inclination is to recommend names that have relatively low debt levels so mm. that if, if crude oil prices you know, swoon once again and, and drop, and you know, we have had, not, in the not-too-distant past, we have had oil prices collapse down to $26 a barrel, um, you know, if we, if, we, if we were to challenge that kind of level, I would rather be in names that, that don't have that much debt on the books 
that are, are better able to survive this kind of environment. And Oxy is not one of those names. We have a two stars or sell recommendation on Oxy despite the move today. Well, and Cabot Oil and Gas, it's interesting. Uh, Dave Wilson, our stocks editor, uh, he uh, brought that up yesterday uh, as something to you know keep a close eye on. Yeah, Cabot's a really interesting name. It's it's unlike Oxy. It's a it's a dry gas name. They get almost all of their production from the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania. Um, the fact that oil went down so much yesterday, uh, ironically, actually helps some of the gas names because there's an awful lot of gas that gets produced along with oil when you're drilling for oil. And so, if a lot of the oil operators pull back, that might be good news for supply, or in other words, pushing down supply. Uh, in the natural gas world, and that's that, that might help drive up prices um, for natural gas, which helps a name like like Cabot. Um, the, the whole gas space has really been yeah. um, decimated in the last you know couple of years by weak pricing. Cabot is among the low cost leaders in that space, and, and we like them. We have a, a buy recommendation on Cabot. Stuart, what's what's the end game here for Russia and Saudi Arabia? Um, yeah, I, I think. My, my initial reaction to this, to, to, to what happened with this knife fight, was uh, Russia essentially telling Saudi Arabia, "Don't try backing us into a corner. That's not going to work." Um, I, I think eventually um, they will they will get their heads together. Uh, but I do think that the the initial move by both parties might be to try to force more U.S. ENPs out of business. Um, it, they tried it once before, and right. and most ENPs took this as kind of a a multi-year boot camp to get their costs in order. And a lot of them did do that, and, and, and the cost structure for a lot of these firms is better than it used to be. But if oil prices get pushed down even farther this time because of the impact of coronavirus, that might be too much to take, and that could cause some firms to either have to merge or, or declare bankruptcy. So 20 seconds, coordinated effort to some extent by Russia and Saudi Arabia against the United States? Well, I mean, it, it's a, if, if they both agree to go their own way and, and supply moves up, then, you know, the, the collateral damage is the U.S. E&P space, um, mm. particularly, because they're the ones that, uh, you know, are, are, are going to be stuck watching oil prices, uh, you know, die a thousand deaths. All right. Stuart Glickman, cool. thank you so much. Really smart analysis. We appreciate it. This is, amid everything, a massive, massive story in the markets. Uh, we're grateful to you for sharing your thoughts. Head of Energy Research over at CFRA Research on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It's time for the drive to the close. Peter Cheer back with us, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities. Uh, once again on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. Peter, good to have you here. You have seen a lot of market cycles. We've talked with you a lot about different uh, environments, different dislocations in the financial markets. What's your read on this one? that I think the worst is behind us. So I switched from being bearish to actually bullish or looking for risk on as of yesterday. Um, 
And I saw lots of signs of capitulation. We saw high volumes. We finally saw a few more unwinds. So I think we started a process of what I call de-risking to degrossing, And I think that's largely over now. So we're starting to set a base. And so what does that look like? I mean, it's interesting that you have this level of confidence because I feel like a lot of us don't. What gives you that confidence? So one is I think just the levels we got to become attractive. I liked 2,800 on the S&P, so we kind of got to levels where it feels that there's some value. I've thought that we need to see a couple things on the fiscal stimulus side. It looks like Italy's going to deliver something. Europe's probably going to deliver. We are probably going to get something. So I think we get that little bit of a boost on the fiscal stimulus side. The coronavirus still concerns me. But we went from a fear factor in the U.S. maybe of a two to three, and we were way behind the rest of the world, and we quickly jumped over the weekend to a six or seven. So I think a lot of that's priced in. And what I'm watching really closely, and the most intriguing thing I find is that the warm cities where there's humidity as well have not seen a significant amount of cases. So it really could be a very seasonal bug. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like, you know, Jason, some of the conversations that we've had, whether it was with Kathy Wood yesterday uh, and some others, I was listening to Barry Ritholtz this morning on surveillance, you know, and again, kind of some kind of backing away from the hysteria or, you know, stress that's in the markets and saying, you know, that we were in some ways, Peter, looking for a reason to sell because we had been having conversation after conversation that, you know, equities were overvalued. It didn't make sense with the earnings projection. So we were almost looking for a reason to sell. Yeah, I would agree with that. And that's part of what I found interesting. Even in the past two weeks, there have been days where I've been able to talk about being bearish. And my thesis had nothing to do with the coronavirus. It was really just about once technical levels were breached, you saw a a bunch of activity. And it was never going to be a one-way street on the way down. I'm sure it's not going to be on the way back up. You know, some of this reminds me of trading in and around when Lehman was struggling, when Morgan Stanley was struggling back in 2008, when the government couldn't pass the original TARP. So expect volatility But I think we should be conditioned now to understand the governments are out there to support. Fiscal stimulus is going to come, and that will really be good for the markets. Well, a coordinated effort, right, would certainly um, show that everybody's behind kind of backstopping industries, the market, societies. Having said that, if we go into a recession, um, Peter, is that more problematic in terms of getting out of it? I think if we actually get to the point of a recession, it will be problematic. I've been very concerned about the demand shock, and I think we were relatively early to talk about the demand shock. And that was coming from this fact that, you know, quarantine seems to be the only solution. It, it does seem to be effective, but that's potentially, you know, hurting demand. So that's why I find it so critical to get that fiscal stimulus. So if we don't get the fiscal stimulus, I, I think then we go much lower than we're at. So we need D.C. to do something, and whether the president's able to do it with Congress or somehow manages to act unilaterally, we need that. Otherwise, I think the demand destruction will be real. That will push us into a potential recession. And more importantly, it will change the investor and consumer psychology. And I think it would be a much, much longer recovery process. All right. So, Peter, we've talked with you and a lot of your colleagues about political risk and sort of weaving it into economic risk and market risk as well. There's a political risk here because even this... Even a national emergency, as I think we can call it, a health crisis, 
is highly partisan, highly politicized. It's coming in a presidential election year. You've seen the same headlines we have of what's coming out of Capitol Hill in Washington today. What feels like the type of fiscal stimulus that actually could get done in our current environment? I think in the near term, my base case scenario is Trump gets rejected by Congress and then declares a national emergency and does anything and pulls any levers he can using that as his tool to kind of force Congress to come. So it's not an ideal situation. It's not what I would like. So I think the initial headlines are not going to be as good because he's going to have to kind of do a backdoor path to it. On the other hand, if you go back to when Europe was having its trouble, Draghi, I believe, was in July or August of that year, talked about doing whatever it takes. He actually did nothing for six months, and people didn't care. So I think just the threat or hope of global fiscal stimulus can last a few days or even a week while the plans come together. All right, so what are you doing? What kind of money are you putting to work? What kind of new money is coming in? What kind of money is going out, though, that people don't buy and necessarily agree with you? (laughs) You know, I think people have been trying to test the stock market a little bit, but I think you're just supposed to buy that. I really like the big tech names. I think they have the added advantage that they have continued to do share repurchase. Most are sitting on huge amounts of uh, cash so they can do the share repurchase. They benefit probably as a whole if we are doing the social distancing and more people are able to work from home offices, etc. So I like big tech. I think you like know, an Intel. Get a big like we have, we have a viewer who just sent me a, t- uh, um, a tweet said, "I bought Intel. Would you buy an Intel here?" Yeah, I think those companies make sense to me. Right? They are going to be able to do share repurchase. People are going to have to be buying computers to do more remote stuff. I like that as a whole. And again, I think at some point you're going to want to delve into the cyclicals. That might be a little bit early. Um, But right now I've kind of been putting my own money into the NASDAQ and just buying QQQ. Well, that's one way to do it. Uh, All right, Peter Cheer, thank you so much. We really always enjoy catching up with you and your colleagues there at Academy Securities. Peter is the head of macro strategy of Academy Securities joining us on the phone from New Canaan, Connecticut. And just want to sort of bring you up to speed on what's been happening over the last hour. This last hour has become so critical, it feels like, over the last couple of weeks for really setting the tone yeah. for what we see. And we are seeing people buy pretty heavily into the close. We're only, we're less than four minutes away from the close and the S&P at its highest level. Yeah, let's just put it out there. S&P 500 up four, almost 4.8%, up 130 points. Dow is up uh, 1,119 points, up 4.7%. 4.7% higher as well on the NASDAQ for a 372-point gain. Listen, exactly. If we're going to get stimulus here in the United States, if we're going to get it elsewhere around the world, you are talking about governments and policymakers propping up the world, saying, we're going to do what we have to do to help out our economies. Investors like that. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.